Bible, we'll turn to Exodus 19 this morning. Exodus 19. In our study of chapter 18, we saw some really simple ways that the Lord was blessing His people, that that He was showing His goodness to them. Those lessons related to relationships and missions and structures that God put in place. It's funny because that chapter comes after so many tremendous signs and wonders, which tells us that the ordinary is quite often missed, but God's hand is in all of it. So this morning when we come to chapter 19, the people of Israel arrive at Mount Sinai, and there's really nothing ordinary about Yahweh. He is a majestic and holy God, But here at Mount Sinai, we learn that He is willing to condescend. And so we'll read chapter 19, beginning at verse 1, and we'll go through verse 15. And remember that this is God's Word. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it, Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, your, your children have gathered to worship you very much like the people of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai. And you have given us in your word a sense of your splendor and your majesty. But now we pray that you would also condescend and grant to us the ministry of your Holy Spirit so that we would know you as you are revealed in your word. I pray, God, that you would be willing to use 
me, an ordinary, sinful, crooked stick, to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus. Oh God, we need your help, and we pray that you would give us ears to hear what your Spirit says to your church. In the name of Christ, amen. There's only one way to get a license in the state of Mississippi once it's expired, and that is to show up and get a new picture taken. And the line was very long at the DMV, and so I decided to go next door and grab some lunch. There was a little sandwich shop close by, and so I ate my sandwich, which was very messy. I spilled some down on my shirt. I surmised that I could probably get the picture taken without the stain being seen, so I went back and got in line. And then the line was short, and before you know it, I stood there holding my new picture and my new license. And as I examined my new license, I observed how brilliant the stain didn't show up on my shirt. But the stain did show up on my face. (laughs) The camera noticed the red sauce, and it was still sitting on my cheek. Ma'am, can I retake this picture? You didn't tell me that I had red sauce on my face. No, sir, we can't do that. We can only do that if the information is, ac- is inaccurate. And I said, well, in, in some sense, the information is inaccurate. I mean, I may be messy, but I'm not always walking around with sauce on my face. And so for four years, I carried around a driver's license in the state of Mississippi with my face soiled on a day that I didn't even know that I was soiled. Which seems very much like the people of Israel as they walk to Mount Sinai. They are soiled, and yet they do not even know it. I'm not talking about stains on their shirts or even on their face. I'm not talking about the dust from the desert. I'm talking about their hearts. They've been called out of slavery out from under the bondage of a very cruel slave driver, and these are a people who are only now learning what it means to have true freedom. And yet they are still very ignorant of God, unaware of what they don't know. They're unconscious of their internal filth. As readers, you and I have have read it on the pages of the Scripture. We see it more clearly than they see it themselves. And so when they arrive at Mount Sinai, you realize these are a people who are soiled from, from grumbling. They're soiled from quarreling, soiled from testing God, all of which flows from the inside. How will they approach Yahweh? They don't know what they don't know. They don't really know who God is. And certainly they don't know who he is. They cannot know who they are, given what they learn. In this particular passage, you wonder how in the world could a people soiled ever approach the living God? Well, the living God speaks. And when he speaks, he makes himself known. And he says this. He says, those who are saved by grace draw near to God reflecting his character. I want to examine this passage under two headings. The first is precious people. The second is transcendent eminence. Now, at this point in the story, the Hebrew people should already know that they are precious to Yahweh. We read it, but they lived it. 
You remember, we, we read at the end of chapter 2 that they groaned because of their slavery. They cried out for help. Their cry went up to the Lord, and he heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and God saw and God knew. But beyond that, they also experienced his favor along the way. His steadfast love toward them, his judgment of his enemies. And so this chapter begins with a poetic purpose. Look at verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountains. And you and I recognize, if I, if I was writing this in English, I would say it one time and that would be enough. So you need to recognize that there's something going on here. In English, what seems to us like repetition in Hebrew is in fact poetic. So one scholar called it the the most sublime section of the whole book. The diction rises above the level of prose and it even assumes at times poetry in form and quality and rhythm. A quick comment. As you read the Old Testament, and it seems to you like the Bible is being repetitious, it is often because the language is poetic in order to tip the ear of the reader. You hear it right here. Wilderness of Sinai. Wilderness of Sinai. Encamped. Encamped. What's the narrator saying? Well, it's not just that they left Rephidim. It's not just that they came into the wilderness of Sinai. If there is any doubt that the God that Moses heard at the burning bush was the true God, this is the answer. In fact, it's taken care of here. God said in chapter 3, verse 12, you'll come back here after you go into Egypt and summon my people out. And here's how you'll know that I'm the true God. You'll worship me here on this mountain. It's been fulfilled. God did what he said he would do. He's brought Moses back to the same mountain where it all began. And this proves that for the last 14 or 15 months, God has been faithful. And this poetry then serves as like a prologue to the rest of the book. It's a pause in order to set the time and the place of the moment in which God began to teach his people what it means to worship and serve him in a covenant relationship They're going to remain encamped in this spot for the next 11 months. And they will not move again until the book of Numbers, chapter 10, verse 11. They encamp at Mount Sinai through the rest of Exodus, all of Leviticus, and the first half of Numbers. Why? So they can learn how to worship and serve the Lord. He's serious. He's not playing. He's he's serious about their faithfulness and he's committed to their transformation, which is for us from the start a helpful point. You and I, a soiled people, saved out of bondage from sin by grace alone. And this is the beginning of a new stage in the life of the sinner. We're not saved to be free as human beings think of freedom. I get to govern my own life. I get to do whatever I want to do and what feels good to me. No, I am saved by the blood of the cross. 
And as God defines freedom, it means this. I used to be enslaved and not know how to serve the living God. Now I've been set free and I'll teach you what it means to enjoy a relationship with me. Precious people. That's the poetic purpose. Next, God recites his grace to them. Everything about this relationship with Yahweh is rooted in grace. So Israel encamped before the mountain. Moses went up to God. God called out to him from the mountain, verse 4. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. One pastor says God addresses his people with these, these proper titles, house of Jacob, people of Israel. Because he's setting forth the terms of the relationship. He's renewing the covenant. He's binding his love commitment to his people. When I perform a wedding ceremony, the father and the bride walk down front. The groom is standing there and he joins them. And a marriage ceremony begins by their full names being stated. I address both parties by those names. Because a marriage ceremony is setting forth the, the terms of the relationship. To be faithful to one another. To love and honor and cherish sickness and health till death do us part. That's what God's doing here. He's setting forth the, the terms of the relationship. And if you miss this, you will misunderstand the rest of the entire book of Exodus and you'll misunderstand everything else in the Old Testament law. You'll misconstrue the Ten Commandments. You'll misunderstand animal sacrifices, the ceremonial and civil law. God doesn't say, work hard for me, obey me while you are still slaves, and if you do well enough, perhaps, maybe, I'll consider potentially setting you free. No, he says, you saw it with your own eyes. I bore you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. Do you remember what I did? I embarrassed and shamed the gods of Pharaoh, one after another, plague after plague. I aimed my arrow directly at their false gods. And then I took Pharaoh's heart in my hand and I molded it like putty. And he died in his arrogance trying to make war with me. And you, my children, watched all of that. As I, as I rescued you from the hand of a cruel tyrant. But you didn't tumble out into the desert. Alone to die. I brought you to myself. I lifted you up. And the image of, of eagles' wings is rich in symbolism. The first readers would have understood when an eaglet is ready to be moved from the nest, the mother stirs the nest. And she watches them as they carefully take flight. And yet if one of them falls or struggles to fly or encounters danger, she swoops down underneath them and she lifts them up and carries them safely. God says, yes, I brought you out of slavery, but immediately, do you remember you were at risk of dying of thirst and hunger? You were at risk of attack from enemies, and I swooped in and I lifted you to safety. 
God so tenderly lifted them and nurtured them and and cared for them. And here we are at Mount Sinai and God says, I've brought you to myself. This is salvation by grace alone. But do you understand that salvation is never really just an end in itself? The whole purpose of God redeeming idol-worshiping slaves was to bring them near for the sake of a relationship. I wonder if you realize that your salvation is for the same purpose. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of the cross. And so forgiveness of sins and salvation in Christ is not for the sake of keeping you out of hell alone. Some of you may live like that. That's all there is to it. I don't have to go to hell. And then consequently, you live as if you have a get-out-of-jail-free card and that was all I had. No, salvation, friends, is meant as, as merely the beginning of the relationship of being drawn near to learn what it means to worship and serve the living God. Precious people, rooted in grace, but also called to faithfulness. Take a look at verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. If this was a play, this would be act two, scene one. The second act begins with a jolting surprise. In spite of the soil of disobedience, in act one, chapters 15 through 17, he says, I'm willing to continue in a relationship with you. And he offers them a lasting relationship. Israel will occupy an exclusive position among all the nations of the earth. Sure, every nation belongs to me, says God. Every person, every king, every creature. But you, my freed slaves, are granted a personal bond with Yahweh. And it's going to be unique from everyone else, provided you are faithful to me and heed my precepts. And here we encounter this word, therefore. It's covenant language. And you might say, since God has saved us, what's next? Where do we go from here? And then the whole Bible is built on this idea that once you've been saved by grace, you've been called into a relationship of faithfulness. And so, if you you confuse this, with a preconceived notion that the Old Testament is all about legalistic laws, there's a very good chance that you will misunderstand something that's crucial about the gospel. You are saved by grace, and your identity is rooted in grace. But salvation never stands by itself. It is always a summons to a new life of faithfulness. It's true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New. This is a God who doesn't change. Which is why we read the Old Testament and find Christ all over the place. The Apostle Paul says this same thing. 
What's next for every person in Christ? Ephesians chapter 1, spiritual blessings in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, grace through faith. Ephesians chapter 3, the mystery of the gospel. And then Ephesians chapter 4, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Or the book of Romans. All of chapter 1 through chapter 11 explains everything about God's electing love for sinners, his adoption of you in Christ, your justification, your status as those who've been born again to a living hope. And then Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. These people of old look and they say, well, we were saved by the blood of that Passover lamb and we've been carried to a new mountain to worship and you and I recognize we're really saved by the blood of Christ, the the true Passover lamb, and we've been carried now to a better mountain and a better place of worship. And if you compare the illustration of marriage, this becomes obvious. What man would ever say to his fiancée, I love you. I want to marry you. I want to be a faithful husband to you. But you don't really have to be faithful to me. The thought is unthinkable. It's every exclusive relationship. Every exclusive relationship is built on the foundation of faithfulness. And so if verse 5 is read in our ears and sounds conditional, therefore, if you will obey my voice, you shall be to me a treasured possession and a kingdom of priests. You must simply remember that he has already chosen them as the objects of his affection. And this call to faithfulness is meant to, to nurture the relationship, to deepen it, to strengthen it as it would in marriage. Kevin DeYoung says it this way, identity leads to responsibility. Responsibility leads to purpose. In other words, God saved them. In order to make them into a kingdom of priests, they're saved by grace, draw near to God, reflecting His character. Precious people, elected by God in order to be sanctified. Now let's take a look at transcendent eminence. This is probably the most complicated way I could have said Something that's pretty complicated. Sort of boggles the mind when you think about it. God is both transcendent and he's also eminent. What's transcendence? Michael Horton defines transcendence as God's distance from his creatures because of his holiness and greatness. It is something like his superior excellence far above everything that he's made. Eminence. Eminence refers to his close personal involvement, his interaction with his creation. So he's far above, and yet he is somehow intimately involved. So God says, first, I want you to affirm the offer. Moses goes back to the elders. He tells them what God has said, and the elders go to each house, and from each house comes back the answer, verse 8, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses goes back and reports those words to the Lord. On one hand, you recognize, don't you, that that the Lord has prompted this kind of affirmation by reminding them of his own faithfulness. I acted as your Savior, verse 4. 
And it certainly does elicit a, a response. Yes, we want Yahweh to be our God. We'll do whatever He tells us to do. And yet, on the other hand, no nation on the face of the earth has ever seen anything like this. A high and holy God who is willing to be tender in His care of His people. And so they affirm the offer. And this affirmation says, yes, Lord, we'll be faithful to you. God says, okay, if you'll be faithful to me, then you must believe the God so willing to condescend. God redeemed them. And then you might say that what follows is his defining of the relationship. And it is a conversation through a mediator. It's still a conversation. If they agree, then God will continue to make himself known so that they will understand him more. Do you recognize that that in itself is is a remarkable act of grace? Here's what I mean. God doesn't have to reveal himself to human beings. He could stay far off. He's completely self-sufficient. But he is moved by love He's moved by his desire that his glory would be known, that his people would worship him. Look at verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. So with their own ears, the Hebrew people will hear God's voice as he speaks to Moses. They already know he's faithful. He brought them here to Mount Sinai, exactly as Moses said. But they're about to move into a season of communication between God and Moses, and they are going to get the privilege of hearing it with their own ears. Instruction in how to love the Lord, how to worship and serve Yahweh. Listen to this. One scholar says the sights and sounds of the Lord's presence on Mount Sinai are meant to signify that Moses is the one through whom the Lord is revealing his word to Israel. So if the people hear this voice from heaven affirming this mediator, then they will know that everything that happens in the days to come, everything that is spoken is spoken directly from God's mouth. Similarly, the Lord Jesus comes out of the water in Matthew chapter 3, and there is a voice from heaven. And everyone present heard the voice. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Why does that matter? The testimony of multiple eyewitnesses separates a true religion from a false one. Mohammed claimed to have received an audible voice from the angel Gabriel telling him to write the Koran. No one else was there to hear it. Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon church, said this, By the power of God, I translated the Book of Mormon from hieroglyphics, the knowledge of which was lost to the world, in which wonderful event I stood alone, an unlearned youth, to combat the worldly wisdom and multiplied ignorance of 18 centuries with a new revelation. Golden tablets, nobody else saw them, nobody else could find them. From the voice of an angel that no one else ever heard. And so when God testifies to Moses, 
And he testifies to his son Jesus. He testifies with a voice from heaven and it's heard by everybody who's present. And you would never write these things down in the same generation as those who witnessed them if others were going to be able to refute it as soon as it was written. But Exodus and Matthew are written right into the generation of the vo- of the generation that heard the very voice of God. All right, here's an illustration that's been used by tons of people, so I really don't even know who to give credit to. I've heard it from R.C. Sproul. I've heard it from Michael Horton. I've heard it from, well, several others. Six blind men are standing around an elephant. One of them leans against the elephant and says, I think it's a wall. The other one, close to the tail, says, no, I think it's a rope. The other one, close to the trunk, says, no, for sure, this is a hose. The other one, standing next to the big ear, says, no, I'm pretty sure it's a fan. And so, of course, the cute illustration is, lots of different religions, Nobody can see God. We're all blind, trying to figure out who he is. And it's a cute illustration. We're all trying to figure it out. But the Bible says, our elephant speaks. Hey, I'm an elephant. Which is what he does here in the book of Exodus. Which is what he does from Mount Sinai. I am the living and true God. You do not have to figure out who I am. You simply need to read who I say I am. I am high and holy, but I'm willing to lower myself to come near to you. And everything that I'm about to tell you is what you must do in order to learn to worship and serve me. Verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people, consecrate themselves, consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. If you'll consider the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, and then you consider the belief of the ancient Greeks that that all the gods lived upon Mount Olympus. At Babel, they presumed that they could build a, a tower tall enough to reach God. And the Bible says that their efforts were so feeble that the Lord had to come down and peer really lowly to see. How's the project going? Not so well. The gods of Greco-Roman culture lived on Mount Olympus and no one can climb Mount Olympus. And Yahweh says, I do not dwell on a mountain and I cannot be reached by human effort. I must stoop down if you are to know me. And I will talk to my servant Moses. Get ready. I am no ordinary being. Set yourself apart. Wash your clothes. I'm holy. And verse 15 doesn't mean that God doesn't like women. It means set yourselves apart from the marital relationship for a moment. Pause and look at me. One pastor said that the more they experienced the eminence, the more they recognized his transcendence. A cloud which reveals his glory, also hides it. And though he comes near in majesty, the cloud means he's, he's still shrouded in mystery. 
which makes the point clearly, this is the God to believe in. This is the God to respect and fear in worship and awe. Though holy, he is willing to come near to sinners and speak. Transcendent eminence. You must believe a God so willing to condescend, but you must also fear the God too dangerous to approach. Verse 12, you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up onto the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him. He shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. At some level, you recognize when you read this passage, Mount Sinai is a terrifying mountain. And the command that is written is not just simply to preserve God's transcendence. The distance is also for their own safety. Do not think you can approach the living God casually or carelessly or like you would one of your buds. At times in church history, the church has emphasized one at the exclusion of the other. The great Gothic cathedrals. We're meant to communicate God's transcendence, this majesty and splendor and grandeur. Where do you think the modern church places her emphasis today? On his eminence, God's nearness. And let's be clear, the New Testament teaches that God came near to humanity in the person of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But we must not sacrifice the reverence of God's transcendence on the altar of His eminence. For the Apostle John goes on to say, in the person of Christ we have seen His glory. And it is glory better than Mount Sinai The Son of God came down from heaven and He revealed His glory not just on the Mount of Transfiguration, but also on another terrifying mountain called Golgotha. The place of the skull. The place where lawbreakers are punished. And so in Christ, transcendence and and eminence become strangely clear. As Moses climbed Mount Sinai to speak to God, Jesus ascends Mount Sinai to obey God. And then after he ascends to Mount Sinai in obedience, he descends to another mountain called Golgotha to suffer the punishment that is due to lawbreakers like you and to me so that he might turn and offer his obedience to those who would believe upon him to offer them a righteousness that could only be earned by a son who would climb Mount Sinai in perfect obedience. And then he turns and gives that righteousness to you. In Christ, this holy God came near. Hebrews 12, 24 says that Jesus is a better mediator who speaks a better word of a better covenant Do not lose his holiness, friends, as you ponder his tenderness. Instead, let us be those who draw near to God, reflecting his character.
Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word.